Welcome back to the Free Mind Podcast, where we discuss philosophic and political ideas with adventurous disregard for intellectual trends. I'm Shiloh Brooks from the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado at Boulder. I'm joined today by Jeff Black, professor at St. John's College, a unique great books college with campuses in Annapolis, Maryland, and Santa Fe, New Mexico. Jeff has served as an associate dean of the graduate program at St. John's, and he's been a distinguished visiting professor at the U.S. Naval Academy, resident fellow in civil military relations at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the Air Force Academy. He's author of Rousseau's Critique of Science and several wonderful essays on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Our discussion today explores what the so-called great books are, how reading them can provide a liberal education, and why they're still relevant, and perhaps more relevant than ever, in today's political and cultural landscape. Jeff Black, welcome to the Free Mind Podcast. I wanted to talk to you a bit about great books and great books education. Uh, this, I suspect, is foreign to a lot of our listeners, What the, that there are great books, why they're great, um, how they educate. And so I thought we'd have uh, a little conversation about that today. And I wanted to start by asking you, what makes a book great? What is a great book? Well, thanks, Shiloh, and thank you for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so this is a hard question. I um, teach at a school that is uh, sometimes called a great book school, and the faculty uh, itself disagrees about what makes books great. So let me give you a sense of my idea about this and also where I, I see the difficulties or the complexities. The first thing that occurs to me is that it's tempting to think that a book is great because it has a great effect in history, right? So I guess I call these famous books or books that seem great because they're famous. And I think ultimately that's a wrong way to go about looking at what makes a book great. But it's not a bad place to start, right? Because there are some books that seem to have had a big effect. They've maybe caused revolutions or um, you know, that a lot of people are very impressed by. And uh, often those are the books that we look to to think, you know, hey, is this book really great? We should read it. And then I think if the book is truly great, what you find is uh, that it has two qualities. And I call those qualities intensity and extent or comprehensiveness. So I'd say this. For me, great books are the books that turn out to be very deep. You look at any part of them and you put a question to that part and it gives you a kind of answer and also very extensive, even comprehensive, that they talk about the whole of human life or they offer a whole possible world. So whereas a lot of books, they're part of a world and they talk about part of a world, I think each great book could be understood as a world in itself. Now, those might be weird answers. What do you think? Uh, does, does that uh, strike a chord with you? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I want to touch on two things you said. First, you mentioned the great books. Um, some great books might actually have uh, practical effects in the world. In other words, they might, uh, might, they might cause a revolution. One, one can think of Locke's great book, uh, The Two Treatises of Government and its influence on uh, the American founding. But then you say even, even more profoundly than um, simply make, uh, being famous or having some effect, these books touch on some would you say perpetual question, some question that is, um, has a wide variety of answers, which different minds have come at through the ages, uh, these sorts of things, and that the answer that's provided to the question is an answer which is a, a piece or part of a, of, a, of a whole of the world, or that that answer attempts to create a world, which, which of the two yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. I guess the first thing I'd say is about the, the question, the word I like, you use perpetual, but I really like the word enduring for that. And here's the way I think about it. It does seem like lots of things change in human life, but human life, life that we've recognized as human is only, you know, tens of thousands of years old. And a lot of things I think change so slowly, they've more or less remained the same during those tens of thousands of years. So they're the same for us as they were for the human beings who first started writing and started conversing about these matters. And those, I think, are the enduring questions. And a good stand-in for a more precise formulation of those questions would be just something simple like, how should I live? 
Mm-hmm. Right. In other words, the sense that human life is uh, a question or a problem that asks for a solution. And then so that kind of gives you a, a first indication of what an answer might look like. Live like this, right, is the kind of answer. And I take it that live like this is describing a world. So, you know, live like this kind of says everything that you could encounter more or less fits in into this whole that I've thought through, the author has thought through, and it all should make sense. Now, the question, though, of, of how great books provide their answers is interesting. What's your experience there? Is it that you discover the answer and then you're done with the book? I mean, mine is, I think I keep coming back to them. Certainly. It seems to me the greatness of a book could be predicated on um, the degree to which one can continue to return to it, and it provides a wellspring of information. The way I put it to my students sometimes is that I change, but the books stay the same. Yet it appears to me that the books are changing because I read them when I was 18 and then 25 and then 30 and 40 and 50 and 60. And every time I come back to them, they say something to me deeper. I'm able to get some new piece of wisdom out of them. As I age, their greatness becomes manifest to me all the more because their profundity speaks to me more as I've lived more life, as as I've experienced more of the world as it were. And, and so that, that occurs to me as something about, a, it's not a book you read once. It's not a, it's not a comic book. It's not a book, yeah. you know, it's something, you know, people talk about great movies in this way or great songs. You could listen to a great song a thousand times or a great movie. You watch it, you know, however many times. And it's always, there's always something there for you. I think a great book is that principle writ large. I, I wanted to return to one thing you said though, you mentioned, um, in response to my question about the sort of the, the way in which great books pose or attempt to answer perpetual, and you put it enduring questions, you, you said that um, this, or at least it seems to me that this would presuppose that human nature doesn't change. And so my, my question to you, if these books can still speak to us, then human nature somehow, uh, the Iliad, what it is that Homer was trying to communicate or write about or get at, Plato, Spinoza, you know, Nietzsche, all the way through history, there's something distinctively human, permanently human, and that would have to be the case if the questions were, were enduring. So I'm curious, does the very notion of a great book or a, a canon of great books, like the one that's presented at the school at which you teach, does that presuppose the permanence of a human nature for which these enduring questions can have, can have meaning? Yeah, I, I think it does, although maybe not in the sense that people usually think of when they think of an enduring human nature, right? In other words, it's very tempting to say, oh, I've got this question for the world. I've got this difficulty. And in order to get the answer, I'm going to turn to human nature and it will tell me uh, what has to be the case. And I think it's a little more uh, nuanced or complicated than that. I'd say something like this. The range of possibilities, of human possibilities, is more or less fixed but it's very extensive. And at various times in history, we're not really aware, unless we make a tremendous effort, exactly how broad that range is. And also at various times in history, there are uh, human possibilities that are easier or harder of access. So some human possibilities get stressed, others recede into the background and become very rare, very difficult to achieve. And so I think what we, more usually encounter as human nature is local constraints on us. And they might not be as binding as they seem to us locally. That the real constraints, the real um, range of possibilities that should guide us are often beyond what our sense of our possibilities are right now, uh, locally, as I was saying. So I do think that there is a human nature. I think it likes to hide like all other kinds of nature. Mm-hmm. It can be covered over and exposed according to the circumstances. In other words, political circumstances, cultural circumstances can reveal or conceal aspects of our nature, and they can and those political or cultural circumstances can conceal them those aspects for so long that we almost think those aren't part of that nature anymore. When in fact they're there in your in your view, but they're just uh, dormant and could be awakened again by other cultural or political circumstances. Yeah, this seems right to me. So one series of great books that I spend a fair amount of time thinking about is books written by Nietzsche. And one of the things that both impresses and also, uh, you know, puzzles me about 
his thought is that on the one hand, he seems to think that being the way he is, is a kind of permanent possibility for human beings or a durable possibility for human beings. And on the other hand, he seems to fear that there might one day be no more people like him. And I guess that could be a factual outcome, right? It could be the case that there just are never any more of one kind of human being. That would be a great loss. But I do think that ultimately I come down on the side of the view that these possibilities will endure as long as human beings are substantially like they are now. Yeah, don't get me started on Nietzsche. I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have you back on for the for, for the Nietzsche podcast. But your uh, your reference to him, and I, I certainly agree with what you say about his thought. Occurs to me though, when when I think of Nietzsche as a as a writer of great books, let's say that Nietzsche more than than many other authors, even in the canon of the great books, is in conversation with those who came before him. Uh, he's in conversation with Plato. He's in conversation with Christianity, with the Bible. He's in conversation uh, with Schopenhauer, uh, you know, all kinds of, of writers. And so is it a distinctive feature of a great book that they speak to one another? In other words, one can go to Barnes & Noble and one can buy the latest romance novel. And while I, I don't deny the great virtues of romance novels at all, I don't think that those those novels are speaking to necessarily to one another or trying to answer these fundamental or enduring questions, as you put it. Whereas great books canon, there seems to be, if there is a canon, there seems to be authors who are, in fact, name-checking one another. Nietzsche will use Plato's name. They're, they're directly in conversation with one another. So can you say something about the way in which the great minds speak to one another and whether within this series of great books, whatever they are, there is a kind of conversation or is that uh, illusory and we're just kind of making that up? No, no, I, I think it's real. And I think uh, you've given the Masterpiece Theater or PG-13 version of it. I, I'd call it they're, they're cursing at one another across mountaintops or something like that. Uh, let me try and explain uh, what I mean by that. If it's true that one sign of a great book is it contains and implies a world that it aspires to be comprehensive or total, that means it tries to exclude other worlds. That means that it has to take on other worlds and say, it's me, it's not that other one. And that means that it is a conversation. I mean, that's an entirely apt word, but it doesn't quite capture what I think is a, a degree of necessary antagonism that makes the interaction between great books very dramatic and very exciting. You know, uh, on some level, I don't want to be too melodramatic about it, but the whole of existence is at stake. You know, what is, what is the truth about the way of things? What is the truth about existence? I, Plato, say one thing, I, Nietzsche, say another thing. And, you know, the existence of Plato for Nietzsche is on the one hand an incitement. Somebody else did what I'm trying to do. And on the other hand, some kind of problem. You know, I don't, if, if he did it, right, if he completed an account of the world that's satisfactory, there's no place for me, right? Certainly not as his equal or even to surpass him, right? So there, I think, is a kind of antagonism that's different. Romance novels could imitate one another. They could applaud one another. They can be fashionable and therefore like one another. And the same is true of scholarship. You know, uh, uh, lots of books respond to one another. But they don't have this edge to them that says the whole of existence is at stake. Right. Although you wouldn't characterize, I suspect, I don't think I would, the, the, the conversation among the minds, you mentioned Plato and Nietzsche, as a zero-sum game. In other words, it's not simply as though, and I don't know, I don't think you were implying this, either Nietzsche has the truth or Plato does. It's possible that both have a piece of it. And so it's, it's possible that the endeavor is cooperative and not merely Con, uh, a contest. Um, in other words, that in some cases, authors reject wholesale the entire theories of one another. In other cases, they'll take pieces of it and build on it, perhaps take it in a, in a different direction. So is there, it seems to me, there's also in addition to there being this, these high stakes, the truth, existence, and the truth about existence. There's also, in some cases, a kind of um, growth or, or cooperation among, among these minds. Yeah, that, that seems right. But ours is a... Um... 
uh, what would I call it, a syncretic age, an age where we like to just mash everything together. And so while your correction is entirely apt, right, I was, I was overstating the case, I do think that the overstatement is helpful to us, right? In other words, I think there's a sense in which people can come to a great book's education thinking that it's a kind of book club conversation among the great authors where they all more or less agree about everything. And, you know, they all uh, approve of one another simply. And there are no difficult choices to be made. I really do think it's more about difficult choices than it is about agreement, although I don't, I don't want to overstate it. And sometimes uh, these authors conceal or understate the debt that they owe to previous writers. And so one of the things uh, involved in learning about them is, in fact, uncovering how much they do agree. That's right. Yeah, that seems right to me. I mean, I, I like very much the notion that there are alternative, that these great writers, these great books are posing alternative or presenting alternative answers, competing answers to the, the enduring questions that you mentioned a moment ago. And, you know, for, for listeners who might not be familiar with those enduring questions, I mean, we have in mind, you know, Jeff already already mentioned some of these, but we have in mind things like what is justice, you know, something like in Plato's Republic. And the, the exploration of that question in the Republic versus, say, the very legalistic exploration of those questions, one would might find in Locke or something like this, uh, based on contract, right, um, right. versus the, the soul as a kind of way, a psychology of the soul. So, you know, the meaning of justice, uh, you know, uh, the meaning of being, uh, why human beings want truth, uh, the nature of their erotic longings and how those erotic longings lead them to behave. These sorts of questions are the kinds of questions that Jeff and I uh, have in mind, and we we we're sort of making the case, I think, in agreement on this point that um, these authors present alternative questions or alternative answers to these to these questions. Yeah, um, that's right. but it, it seems to me, Jeff, like if if it's true that these authors are in conversation with one another, and if it's true that they're presenting competing answers to enduring questions, as well as on occasion picking up the flag where someone dropped it and running further forward with it, a little bit of both of these, mm -hmm. that this gets us to the subject matter of the institution at which you teach, which is that there is an education to be had in listening to this conversation in weighing these competing answers, and in ultimately, uh, if one goes as far as you went with your remark, deciding which of the competing answers is true and right and which ones are wrong. I mean, that would be the ultimate, the ultimate goal. It's not simply to leave it at, um, here are all these competing answers, or to leave it at, uh, at, at the notion that everyone agrees, as you mentioned. So mm -hmm. can you say, you know, it seems to me that St. John's College makes an offer to the student and it, it says, come and listen to these books, come and listen to these authors in agreement and in argument with one another. This is the best pathway to liberal education. The best pathway is not to go to a school where you're going to pick a major, select electives, determine your own education. The best pathway is not to go to a liberal arts college and study only mathematics, only art history, only physics, but you need to come here and listen to the entire conversation, acquaint yourself with all of the questions, mathematical questions, psychological questions, political questions, historical questions, musical questions, acquaint yourself with all of those and the competing answers, and that will be an education. And that education is arguably better than, and is more in keeping with the spirit of liberal education than than other educations that go by that name. So can you give an account of how the great books provide a pathway, good and effective pathway, a better pathway into, into the liberal education than other alternatives? Yeah, yeah, so, so that is a, um, a very complicated question. Let me just pull on a little part of it and we can get started that way. Um, how do you go from great books to the idea of a great books education? And I just say this, uh, so these, these books are in conversation with one another, and obviously that conversation is conditioned by the order in which the books appeared in history, right? So an earlier writer can converse with his predecessors, but cannot converse with his successors, right? Um, that the writers can only uh, converse with the books that were available to them. All of these things, it seems to me, are somewhat matters of accident. Also, in all frankness, the books that uh, we happen to know about, as opposed to the books that were maybe destroyed or lost to history, um, or might be hidden for some reason or another, uh, maybe even recent books that just haven't come to light that might be great. 
that's also a matter of accident. So accident has strung together a certain series of great books, and you read them in that series, which tends to be a chronological series, and that is our first stab at what constitutes a great book's education. And the difficulty is that the way we then present it to the world is we say, this is the canon, right? This is the authoritative series of texts. And so I guess the first thing I'd want to stress is that while it looks on the face of it like the series of great books, the canon is authoritative, really it's not. It's got to be open to revision or at least to thinking about why the books are there and why they are in the order that they are, if the order is best. So how does that sound as a, as a start, right? That the first thing you need to do to turn great books into a great books education is get some kind of series and think about why you happen to have them in that series. Yeah, that, that sounds right to me. It is the, probably the best starting point for the question that I posed because it would seem to me, you know, I was asking the question, how does, if these authors are in conversation with one another, does that conversation itself point in the gesture in the direction of an education? And, you, you know, you seem to be saying, whoa, 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 we've got to determine who gets to be in the conversation. And not only that, this conversation occurs by accident and it's open to revision. And it would seem to me, and this is why I think your answer is, is a, a good one and not one that I had foreseen, that that process itself, in other words, determining what the canon is, uh, what its parameters are, how it might change, how it might change over time, is itself a liberal education or at least requires a liberal education. Uh, right, right. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of the great books education is in part revising or learning about why the series of great books is the way it is, right? Yeah. Um, yeah and I think, you know, uh, as a faculty member at an institution that is sometimes called a great book school, I have a very live sense of the way we're always talking about, you know, are we reading the right parts of this book? Are we reading the right book of this author? Might there be a better book out there? Should we read this other book together? Because it might be great. So what looks authoritative from outside is actually internally generated by the members of the series of great books themselves, by the books themselves, by their own criteria, right? Uh, what other books match up to Plato's Republic, right? What other books match up to de Beauvoir's The Second Sex? right? Um, how do they uh, speak with one another? Who do they mention? Should we consider those authors? And this comes to look from outside like something that gets called the Western tradition or, you know, the Western canon. But again, I think that a lot of the appearance of an authoritative uh, list and of a kind of um, geographically delimited or culturally delimited list is a matter of accident. Yeah. So it, and it's a matter of accident, are you saying, on the part of those who, whoever we are, uh, perhaps the faculty of St. John's, perhaps the, the faculty of the old Oxford, or the people who translate the lobes and public, you know, whatever the case may be, is it, a, is it a matter of accident on their part, or is it a matter of accident that these books were written, and these are the ones that were written and others could have been written you see what I mean? But these are the ones. So I'm asking, I guess, yeah. about the arbitrary character of the appearance of the books on the one hand, that this mind happened to have existed at this point and written this book and not another mind at that same point who wrote that book. That seems arbitrary or accidental to me. And then also the uh, the choices themselves on the part of us who come after the writers who say, well, this uh, book of Plato's gets admitted, uh, that maybe this book of Xenophon doesn't because he's inferior. It's a good yeah. example because Xenophon, Xenophon is, is not read at St. John's and, uh, you know, was, was really popular at one point uh, in history and then went underground and has only been recovered in the past, you know, 100 years. So both of these things seem to me to be accidental. And you seem to be making the argument that a large part of the task of a, of a great books education, I mean, before we even begin, there's this prior pedagogical task, which is to sort all of this out too. And those standards are all open. Like those standards are up for grabs. What, what standards we're going to use to determine what should be included? Yeah, yeah. The way you uh, phrased it seems entirely correct to me. And I just add a third dimension to it, which is if you're going to have an institutional education, right, where everybody comes and meets together and everybody knows what they're going to be reading and everybody more or less reads the same thing and can talk with one another about it, you need to make some decisions, 
and you need all to agree on those decisions. And sometimes it comes down to something like, uh, you know, to choose Rousseau, who is a writer I'm very fond of. Rousseau's greatest book is too long to fit into the series of great books, right? If we were to read it, we'd have to give up something else, and we think that something else might be better or more important. And because Jeff Black doesn't agree, but everybody else does, you know, uh, Jeff is just going to accept uh, for the sake of having a, a common, um, agreed upon uh, curriculum that we can all study and, and uh, talk to one another about. So there's that third dimension of accident, I think, that comes from any embodied institution at a particular time in history. And the important thing, I think, I can't underline this enough, is the experience with greatness. Right, the encounter with great books, living with them, getting to know them, that is what provides the internal standard that makes you more and more able then to find other books that are like them uh, wherever you choose to look. Yeah, I, I like very much, it was very St. John's of you to present the democratic character of the canon. Like, we, you know, we have, I've got a compromise and I get a vote, but then all my votes are outweighed. I mean, this is, this is a different way, I think, of bestowing, and I wonder if it's the authoritative way or what you would say about this. It's a different way of bestowing greatness on a thing. In other words, to do it democratically. That's not the only way one could do it. One could say, well, I'm the world's expert on a thing. Uh, on Plato or something like that. And I say that if we're going to read one dialogue, we're going to read the Timaeus and here, you know, and, it, and we're not going to read the statesman, you know, mm -hmm. for these mm -hmm. reasons. And, and so you say, well, at St. John's with Rousseau, well, his longest book is, um, you know, it's more than we can sort of handle right now. And so I've got to compromise and these kinds of things. And I, I just wonder to what degree it's, you think it's sound policy to democratically bestow greatness. You see what I mean? To bestow yeah, the yeah, mantle yeah. of greatness yeah. versus the knower, if there could be such a thing, the knower bestowing that mantle, you see. Yeah. I suspect it's sound policy, but maybe saying that doesn't go very far, right? In other words, I put it this way. I don't think in making the choices of the canon that we make, we are determining greatness one way or the other. A book is great or it isn't, right? And it could be that all of us, the folks who are making the decisions, don't understand the books well enough. And if we did, we would see, for example, this is, this is my own view now, things we get by sacrificing Rousseau's Emile are actually not worth it. We should be reading Emile, right? So the democratic process, I think, bestows a kind of legitimacy because you need consensus to have an education where everybody is participating to some extent. And you need consensus to have an education also where the participants feel free to exercise their own judgment and to learn publicly. But that doesn't mean that you're making the books great or determining what the great books are. That means you're aspiring, you're hoping that you have it right, that you see the greatness of the books clearly and are making the right choices. Right. And that's what, that's what you would say that you all at St. John's do because you've got to, you've got to get the show on the road. And so, mm -hmm. so books have to be chosen, books have to be read, compromises have to be made. This seems just practically true to me. And, it, and I want to emphasize that what it doesn't do is close off, as you've already well put it, it doesn't close off the notion that new books could be admitted or that old ones could be or should be jettisoned. I mean, it's a, I like your view of the canon as something which is not canonical, which is right. which changes, which can change in in a certain way. As I wonder if this wouldn't map onto what you said about human nature earlier, as um, human nature's possibilities and all of their manifoldness are exposed or um, withdrawn, perhaps preferences change and therefore the canon changes, and the understanding, the idea of what greatness is changes. I can envision a world in which. Achilles is not seen as a great man, but as a very violent and oppressive man, a toxic man, versus, say, someone, uh, a world in which Achilles might be viewed as that man to whom everyone should aspire to be. And, and so this occurs to me that the greatness of a book could change according to the uh, natures, perhaps, of the people um, making these, these decisions. Well, you've touched on a very important question. And so I'd, I'd just like to bring this out. And the question then becomes something like this. Is it better to offer books, great books? You know, if you're choosing among them, you have a, a series of books you think are great, and you have to make some decisions as to which you're going to focus on. Is it better to offer books that 
stress human possibilities that are close to the possibilities of the people who are studying them, right? That are relatively prevalent possibilities. Or is it better to offer books that suggest the most alien possibilities to the people who are reading them? And here, I think, pedagogically, there's a real conundrum. I'm reminded of something that Nietzsche says, and I'm going to get the quotation wrong, but it's something like, there's no surer way to corrupt a young student than to teach them to value people who agree with them more than people who disagree with them. And so on the face of it, the education is best that confronts you with the great possibilities of the great books that are most different from the things you think. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's a marker I could lay down. And that would be fine were it not for the very human tendency to become angry at alien things. Right. And especially alien takes on things that we care very deeply about. Right. So if the great books education is meant to give you a full sense of the scope of human possibilities, one of the things it has to say to you is this thing that you care a lot about, this thing that is the way you're living your life now. It might not be the only way to live. It might not even be a good way to live. And it's hard to know how to broach something like that with somebody. I can tell a little story here. Uh, I'm told that I, I used to um, be at the head of the Graduate Institute at, at St. John's. And I told that when the program was originally decided for the Graduate Institute, what they would do is they would start by reading a modern book on a particular subject that was meant not to be great. And then they would read a great book that addressed something uh, similar to what was addressed by the modern book explicitly. And so by that contrast, it was meant to show the uh, students how much better the great book was than the modern book. And I can see some advantages to starting students on what's more familiar to them. But I think that there's also pedagogical difficulties with setting certain books up to fail and pedagogical difficulties with just confronting people with alien possibilities and saying, look, this is obviously better, right? So exactly how to get students to start thinking about the possibilities that are depicted in great books is a very tricky pedagogical question. And I think it's always decided on the fly and in the particulars. Yeah, it, it would seem to me that the question is, is very tricky, but it would, it would seem to require at least one common notion to you to say to use yeah. the euclidean uh, term uh, we'd have to agree on something before we even set sail and that is that we can commune with people who are different from us in other words the power of imagination is encompassing i am not achilles mm -hmm. i am not booker t washington i am not frederick douglas but i can sufficiently read their writings or read about them to such a degree that their lives can in some way become my life and that part of my life is their life. We're not utterly and completely alien to one another. We're not utterly and completely different. The, the power of, of imagination and the commonality of, what the, of the human is enough to be able to, to make me or to put me uh, in, in communion with them and to be able to learn from them. And I, that I have to believe it seems to me from the beginning, or else I can just say all of these books are written by people who are primitive, who are different than me. The world has changed. Their mm -hmm. experience is not my experience. And there's a, there's a wall between the two of us such that I could never know their experience. This seems to me to, that this, this kind of sentiment can't produce an education of the sort that these great books, quote unquote, attempt to provide. Is that Mm -hmm. Does that seem right? Yeah, yeah, that seems right. And there's a very powerful opinion out there that says something like, you can't understand somebody if you haven't had the same experience as they have had. And uh, my sense is that that opinion is actually true on some level, but it just has too narrow an understanding of what an experience is. Right. In other words, it's too literal minded. Right. You know, you can't understand, you know, what a car is unless you've ridden in a car. But there are novelistic depictions that engage the imagination, as you were saying. And there is the ability to provoke thoughts in other human beings by writing that produces experiences in the reader that I think are enough to get the essential commonality, the essential durability of something fundamental and therefore a fundamental alternative on the table and shared between 
you know, the writer those many thousands of years ago and the readers today. Yeah. Yeah, that that's what I what I have in mind. And I, I, you know, I sometimes tell my students that you only get to live one life, you yourself. So, you know, you, Sally, you get to be Sally simply. But there's a way, a very clever way for you to live a thousand lives and be a thousand people. And what you must do is read a thousand books from all sorts of different kinds of people of all from all historical times and all kinds of ethnicities and backgrounds and political views and metaphysical views and whatever religious views, whatever the case may be. You can when you, you know, when you read uh, Melville, you can become his characters. Or if you read Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington, you can become him. Or if you read, you know, uh, a novel by Tolstoy, you can become Anna Karenina. I mean, I mean, something like this, that this not fully and not wholly, but on the other hand, it's it's an opportunity to live a wider variety of lives than your own and therefore to acquaint yourself with a wide variety of human types and human experiences and to cut yourself off from that from the get-go to say that's impossible. Well, that seems not only to limit you, but to go against the intention of a person like, say, Frederick Douglass, who sat down and wrote the narrative of his life so that it might be read, so that it might be felt, so that you might live it, even though you're, you're not going to live it, you can't live it, yeah. but that, that he could put you as close as he could to, to something like that. Yeah, it's amazing once you notice it, the contradiction involved in, in implicitly saying to somebody like Frederick Douglass, you know, Mr. Douglass, you believe that you can communicate essential things to me by writing. But I know better than you do, Mr. Douglas, that that's just not possible. So I'm not going to bother reading your book, which presumably cost you great exertions of soul to produce and you thought was more important maybe than a lot of other things in your life, because I know better than you do what is possible for human beings. Well, that, you know, you got to earn the right to make that kind of judgment. And I think that cannot be your starting point. You have to be more open to the thought that these folks in the past really can reach us. And it would be a great loss not to uh, try to take advantage of what they suffered so hard to provide for us. Yeah. And th- this, this seems to me to get at, you know, the, the, another question that I had for you. I mean, I'm still, I'm not going to let you off the hook on how great <laughs> books liberal education is. Um, is, is this education better or richer than um, liberal education as it might be understood elsewhere? But this gets us to the question, which I think in some ways we've already addressed, of the continuing relevance of the great books, especially in our time when such an idea can seem antiquated. It seems like what you and I have been saying is that it's in a way precisely in keeping with the spirit of our time, if you're willing to grant that the imagination has power over the soul. If you're willing to just to grant that that presupposition, it's precisely in keeping with the spirit of our time to read the wide variety, diversity of great minds, great authors, of men, women, of, of all times, of all places, of all ethnicities, that this in a way can be, uh, can contribute richly to the, um, to the goals of the spirit of our time or something like this, that these books are still relevant precisely because they embody the notion of uh, variety certainly the most important sort of variety in my view, which is intellectual variety, people who disagree with one another, but also historical, cultural, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, let's see. I do think it's important, you know, so I like, I like the use of the term diversity there, right? It does seem to me that despite the um, apparent homogeneity of the authors, which is often apparent. It just means that we're not really aware of distinctions that they themselves would have made, right? The way they would have talked about their own identities. But the apparent homogeneity of the authors does make us think that they're all saying more or less the same thing and that it's a very outdated thing that's not helpful to us. I guess the other direction we could go would be to wonder about how great books education turns into liberal education and what liberal education means. So do you, do you have a preference in terms of kind of which direction we go? Would you rather um, talk a little bit about the, the question of relevance? You no, know, I mean, I, th- I think we've, we've made an account, we've given an account of why the books continue to be, to be relevant. Although I think that in order to agree with that statement, you have to agree to several prerequisites, which mm-hmm. we've, we've outlined. But it seems to me like a pathway into the question of relevance into the question of 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 what a proper liberal education is might uh, how do I put it posing the question of what a proper liberal education is might at the same time answer the question of whether the books are relevant. 
Yeah, so yeah. Well, why don't we do that? Let me say just one more thing, maybe about relevance, and then I'll say something about uh, liberal education. So the way you and I were talking, I would characterize as synthetic, right? That we were starting from first principles, and we were talking about reason to believe that the books could say something to us, and reasons to say we don't know enough to simply reject that they can say something to us. Um, but there's another way into this that's analytical, and I, I think it has a, a certain appeal. Um, if you're really taken up by questions of the day, I think one of the things you'll notice is that there's a certain language that these questions tend to be expressed in. So I'll just take one word, uh, the word identity. And sooner or later, when you use that word a lot, it might occur to you to wonder what the word actually means, right? We all have some sense of what we mean when we say identity. But, you know, what exactly is that sense? What are its parts? How do they hold together? And the surprising thing is that when you press on questions like what do these words mean or what do our fundamental categories with which we address questions of the day, what do those categories mean? You first end up with current authors, but those current authors end up citing often as a kind of authority or kind of source less current authors. and almost always there's a kind of trail, maybe not very clearly blazoned, but a kind of trail that leads to the great books. And, uh, you know, a good example would be Rousseau, who I think is at the root of a lot of uh, current political terminology that we're finding very powerful and appealing. And there's this, there's this feature of the great books that's, that's kind of funny. Whereas we're used to um, a notion of scientific progress where we, we know more and more with each generation of scientists, there's a countervailing tendency where the initial insight tends to be brighter and more powerful than subsequent iterations of that insight. So as you follow this trail towards the origin of this concept that we use, this thing, this piece of the furniture of our minds, you find a little label on the bottom of the furniture that says, made by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and when you show up in Rousseau's carpentry workshop, you find the plans for the idea, right? You find the original of the chair, right? And it's often much more impressive and complex and just educational than the version that we were using in our heads and moving around. So there's this other analytic sense of relevance. These are the people who made the tools that we are using to think about the problems today without knowing who made them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very great, that's a very nice way of, of putting it. And of course, when you say these things about Rousseau, I can't help but say, no, no, Nietzsche's the one who has all the uh, made in, made in Nietzsche's workshop, you know, because I see exactly that. And I'm sure someone who studies Heidegger or whatever the guy, you know, but you, yeah. can, you, it, you can, you can see this all over the place. The fingerprints is in a way of these people. Right. Um, of these great authors. Yeah, that's a very nice way of putting it. And that, in a certain sense, I mean, that answers the question, or at least gets us to the question, which, which I've been dancing around the whole time, which is this as a liberal education and by liberal education, I, I mean, I think that term, you know, is, is, is a loaded one. I think a lot of people don't understand what it means. Our, uh, the, our board of regents, uh, right. there was some talk some years ago to remove the term liberal education from our from the University of Colorado's mission statement because mm -hmm. uh, it sounded too political, you know, which is clearly not what the, the uh, term is meant. Uh, it, it means liberating, freeing, an education which frees the young person, which frees the mind. Mm -hmm. and, and so what your remark indicates to me is if you if you read these great books, what you could see is the source of the ideas that have currency today, which may not be identical to the ideas in Rousseau, as an example, but which bear his fingerprints or the marks of his workshop. Mm -hmm. And that itself is liberating because you know the origin of the ideas. You can go back to where it was first conceived and, and ask the why question to Rousseau and then trace the development of those ideas through history all the way to your own time. And that itself liberates you from the prejudice of simply having to ingest those ideas without knowing their origins and without knowing that at the origin, there's a debate taking place between, say, Rousseau and someone else. You know what I mean? You can go back right. and, and, and that is liberating because that frees you from trafficking in contemporary intellectual currency and permits you to traffic in um, the questions about absolute, as you put it, enduring solutions and questions. That's a very different thing. And right. that's freeing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems right to me. So it is uh, freeing in the sense that you're no longer using, without awareness, uh, tools that cost somebody to make. And without awareness of the cost that was paid, right, the choices that were made in order to make these tools available, or the motives of the person, the first person who fashioned these tools, right? So in that sense, it frees you. And I think it frees you also in this other sense. There, there are a number of different ways of thinking about what lib- liberal education liberates from. But I'd want to put my finger on this one in particular. A lot of these terms have a dimension in which they excite our passions immediately. And so when the term gets used, we love or we hate almost immediately. And that is from a kind of simple identification with or rejection of the term, right? This term is mine. It belongs to my team. Uh, That term is yours. It belongs to your team. I love these terms. I hate these other ones. And knowing where the terms come from, knowing that they're complex, knowing that they were put together by somebody who was tormented by the choices and maybe wasn't entirely happy with the the outcome, that I think makes it a lot harder to simply love or hate any of these ideas, Mm. right? It makes you, um, the phrase I like, which I'm I'm stealing more or less um, shamelessly from, from Nietzsche, is it makes you more multiple. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a part of you that loves it. There's a part of you that might dislike part of it. And I think that makes human beings more moderate, more able to listen to one another, and less likely simply to give in to passions of love or hate in ways that are detrimental to them, right? In ways that provoke fights over uh, things that don't necessarily need to be fought about or that obscure common ground that actually exists. So I do think there's a kind of moral component, if I can put it that way, to the liberal education, to being freed from more or less ignorant use of terms whose origins we don't understand. That's a really wonderful poetic way of putting it. In fact, if such a person with the multiplicity you highlight, that part of them could love a thing, part of them could hate a thing, it's all in the same human being. If such a person exists, could exist, I would argue that person is is in a way free. I mean, I think that's what you're what you're getting at there. And this goes back to what you said at the beginning about the creation of the world, that um, not merely are the books an attempt to present a world, they attempt to turn you into one. In other words, you become a world yourself. And by that, I mean a person who is populated, if you'll permit me this term, oh, yeah. with many people, uh, with many, you know, a person who, who is capable of both seeing the great merits and therefore loving an idea or a position and, or a person. And then also seeing its its great down, uh, you know, flaws, and therefore hating or rejecting entirely a person or an idea or a position. And this mm-hmm. is um, this is a free person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I, I don't want to hide the the possibility that there's a downside to this. And I'd say, you know, those sorts of human beings are not necessarily useful to political movements, right? Because they're the kind of human beings who say, well, yes, but on the other hand. Or they say, well, it's complicated, so let's lay out the difficulties, right? And what we need for politics often is allegiance, is quick action, is being faster than the other guy, right? Or being more numerous than the other guy. And those are things that you might become less apt for. But I do think the compensation is you're more likely to become a genuinely lovable human being. And you're more likely to become a genuinely interesting human being if you contain multitudes in the way that you just described. Well, I I cannot put it uh, any better than that. I have one parting question for you. Our time is short. You've mentioned that you're a big fan of Rousseau. I'm curious if your students over the course of your 20 plus years at St. John's, are there any books uh, that you find resonate with students in particular that you might recommend to our our listeners, both young and old, or at least young at heart, that you find uh, really really do accomplish the, the sorts of things we've discussed today. Yeah, I think I think the easiest thing for me to say is to recommend books that are resonating with me right now, the books that if I had uh, you know world enough in time, I would spend all my time reading and thinking about. I do find that students are more or less attracted to certain books, but I do think that that attraction might be accidental in the ways that we were talking uh, about earlier. you know if we happen to be at war, 
It might be that uh, the Iliad is more interesting. If we're not, it might happen to be that it's less easy to understand. Questions like that that have to do with the configuration of souls present in a class. But uh, let me give you my um, the books that occupy me right now. Xenophon, who is not on our program, I find great. And so both his Socratic writings and his non-Socratic writings, like The Education of Cyrus and The Anabasis. Rousseau, I find, rewards uh, repeated returns, especially Emile, which is, I think, his greatest book, and I think he thought his greatest book. And then a lot of Nietzsche, and I'd probably single out Zarathustra and Beyond Good and Evil as the books that I enjoy spending a lot of time with. So those are my big three right now. I don't know, don't know who your big three are right now, Shiloh. Well, that's pretty close. I mean, <laughs> you're, a, you're a man after my own heart. Uh, I would only add, uh, I, I add to these things, the writings of um, some of the greatest statesmen uh, in history. I very much, you know, have enjoyed uh, reading uh, the Federalist Papers and, and learning some of the things that Jeff talked about some time ago, that the way in which men like James Madison were tormented by the choices they had to make. Even Jefferson, I know that they're often not there's a sort of representatives people who who made choices which were simply wrong and how could they have done it but as jeff highlighted a moment ago reading these books especially if you happen to be an american will give you you know the federalist papers or jefferson's writings madison's writings you can find these in various collected volumes will give you some sense of the torment that these men face the attempt the, the difficulty in politics of coming to compromise the need for the virtue of prudence which is to say that some things have to simply be done incrementally to learn that lesson is a very valuable one so right. i only add to that uh, those books and then of course the great alexis de tocqueville who yes. in my view is perhaps the greatest psychologist of peoples that i've ever come across not individual persons that might be nietzsche but peoples i think tocqueville outstrips him so uh, start there, everybody, and, and uh, we're happy to uh, to recommend more. One thing I recommend to our listeners, if you're interested in what uh, these more about what these great books are, check out the St. John's College website. They post their seminar reading lists for the year for the freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior years on the website, and so you can go and see what, in in the view of this institution, the greatest books are. Uh, in chronological order and take a stab at, at any of these that uh, that happen to interest you. So thanks so much, Jeff, for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Shiloh. This was a pure pleasure. All right. Thanks, everybody. The Free Mind Podcast is produced by the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado at Boulder. You can email us feedback at freemind at colorado.edu or visit us online at colorado.edu slash center slash Vincent.